from WRHU in Hempstead, New York. This is Getting to the Root. We explore issues in depth and shed light on important topics that you won't hear on your day-to-day news broadcast. Covering topics of local, national, and international importance while bringing community voices to center stage. Hello, everyone. My name is Dennis Belen Morales, executive producer and regular contributor to Getting to the Root. Today, I'm here to bring you to the topic of the controversy of a number of statues commemorating Civil War leaders from the South. I'm here with Dr. Alan Singer, a professor of teaching, learning, and technology, and the director of the Social Studies Education Program here at Hofstra University. Dr. Singer is a former New York City high school social studies teacher and is the editor of a social science docket, a joint publication of the New York and New Jersey Councils for the Social Studies. He is the author of Teaching Global History, New York and Slavery, Time to Teach the Truth, Social Studies for Secondary Schools, and editor of a 268-page Secondary School Curriculum Guide, as well as a regular contributor to Huffington Post. Dr. Singer found out that the statues and the street names in New York City are named after slaveholders and traders, and he demands that they be brought down. Dennis, thank you for inviting me. It's uh, always a pleasure to be on (laughs) WRHU. I, I, as an historian, I I became involved, and as a teacher, I became involved in these issues really in the 1990s. And I became involved because there was tremendous debate in New York State what should go into the secondary school social studies curriculum. And it was a big fight. Uh, In the end, the state decided that the curriculum should focus on human rights and the right to food, the right to life, the right to freedom. The problem still was political. So the state actually uh, enlisted Hofstra to write a curriculum on the Great Irish Famine and the right of people to food. And we actually, based on that, we offer a course at Hofstra on the Great Irish Famine. Uh, They decided they did not need a new curriculum on the right to life because there were many NGOs that already had developed curriculum primarily on the European Holocaust. The big issue was the one on the right of people to freedom and slavery in the transatlantic slave trade. The state envisioned a curriculum focusing on New York as a major hub on the Underground Railroad, which it was. But as we began to do research and writing, it also became apparent that not only was there slavery in New York State up into 1827, but New York was involved in the transatlantic slave trade after it was declared illegal up into the 1860s. We're talking about major institutions in New York, like Citibank, were involved, and Domino Sugar were involved in the slave trade. So it became really contentious developing that curriculum. Thank you for that, Alan. I have a few questions for you today, beginning with what are the issues surrounding these controversial statues in the United States? We, we have statues, we have place names, named after people who are traitors, the United States, named after people who are criminals. And just let me give you a a couple of examples. During the Civil War, uh, General Robert E. Lee and General Stonewall Jackson 
they had both been generals in the United States Army. They had sworn to defend and protect the United States Constitution. They violated their pledge, and they declared war on the country that had provided all these things for them. They were traitors to the United States. Yet in Brooklyn today, there's a street named after Robert E. Lee, and there's a street named after Stonewall Jackson. Some of the Confederate armies committed genocide against black troops. There was a famous massacre at Fort Pillow, Tennessee. And it's time that we stop honoring Confederates and say what these people did was wrong. But there are lots of other issues. There are statues and street names and parks and schools named after Peter Stuyvesant in New York. Peter Stuyvesant was the largest private slaveholder in the Dutch New Amsterdam colony, and he was a noted anti-Semite. But the biggest one, and this is going to blow people's mind, New York City and state are named after the Duke of York. The Duke of York later becomes King James II. Well, the Duke of York was also the head of the Royal African Company, which was the British slave trading company. New York City and state are named after a slave trader. There's a lot of our history has been erased. So we have these statues and place names all over the place. People aren't even aware of who they commemorate. The statues have been up for decades. Why are people talking about the issue now? I, I think three things have really fed into bringing it brought up. The first is the Black Lives Matter movement that was a response to police violence against African-American youth. And so what happens is as the Black Lives Matter movement began to protest against police violence, it brought renewed attention to the history of racism in the United States. I think the second thing related to that was when Colin Kaepernick took a knee at the playing of the national anthem in a football game. Again, that brought national attention to some of the issues of violence against black people, particularly young black men. And the third thing that really highlighted it was the alt-right neo-Nazi marches and violence in Charlottesville, Virginia. The city of Charlottesville made a decision to take down its Robert E. Lee statue because Robert E. Lee was a traitor to the country. The alt-right neo-Nazis, Klan members, and Trump supporters saw this as an opportunity to defend American tradition, racism. And that, the violence that they brought about in the mimicking of Nazi activities in Germany before World War II has brought these issues to a forefront. When were the Confederate statues first erected? Well, one of the things that happens, and again, there are people who, other people who need to take some responsibility for this. Abraham Lincoln, at the end of the Civil War, promises amnesty to all the Confederates. Uh, It was as if the history of their treachery and the history of the commitment to enslavement of human beings was just going to be wiped out. What happens is during Reconstruction, there was an effort to empower blacks to give them the right to vote, to give them lands, to give them economic opportunity. And what you have in response was the development of Jim Crow and segregation. A lot of the monuments were first built in the 1890s as an effort, as part of the effort to deny blacks their rights, but also part of the effort 
to redefine the Civil War as somehow a holy and justified cause. We also had a wave of these monuments being built in the 1920s. These monuments were not built at the end of the Civil War, but they were built as part of racist, segregationist You mentioned campaigns. before that the Robert E. Lee statue was taken down. So what other statues have been taken down across the United States? The, the other big one that was taken down was taken down in New Orleans in the 1990s. It was actually a statue commemorating a Klan-like organization and uh, segregationists. Those, those are the two big ones. A lot of them still remain. In, in New York City, there are two that I find particularly offensive. On 103rd Street in Central Park is the statue of James Marion Sims. James Marion Sims is uh, commemorated because of his medical practice. Sims experimented on enslaved African women, and he did this without any anesthetic or antiseptic, and he did the same operation repeatedly on the same women over and over again. Here we have somebody who's basically committed crimes. Uh, he did human experimentation. We have a statue commemorating him. That's the one outside of the Museum of the City of New York, correct? Yes, yeah, we were there. Yes, okay. And I think Sims has got to come down. And right now, New York City is having a big uh, series of hearings on it, and that's one that's particularly being targeted. Another one that's being targeted is Columbus, and I'm not as convinced that Columbus should come down. Uh, we don't even know what Columbus looked like. This, it's not really a statue of Columbus the person. It's really sta a statue of Columbus, the symbol of the uh, European, Western Hemisphere, and Eastern Hemisphere being merged into one global society. I think kids have to learn in school what the impact of that exchange was, and part of the impact was genocide against Native Americans and the enslavement of Africans. But the Columbus statue I'd rather keep and I'd rather people learn about what happened. Uh, the other one that bothers me, I was a boy, I grew up in the South Bronx. 167th Street, there's a big park, 167th Street in Jerome. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know that park. Yeah, I do. Okay. We used to call it the 167th Street Park. Turns out it actually has a name, and its name is Mullaly Park. And it's named after someone who was a, well, basically a crook in the 1880s. He helped the tweed ring buy a property and then resell to the city. Wow. But Mullaly in the 1860s was indicted for inciting the 1863 anti-draft riot that led to the lynching of African-American men in the streets of New York. He was indicted, charges were later dismissed because they were trying to settle things. But the reality is we have a park named after someone who incited riots that led to the death. And the estimate is maybe 100 people. I think Mullaly Park's name has to be changed, and I want to see Sims taken down. Thank you, Alan. Now, how can we know for sure what statues should be removed and which should stay? Okay. There's no way to know for sure. There is precedent, though, for taking statues down. After the fall of the Soviet Union, no one objected when they took down statues of Marx and Lenin and Stalin. You know, matter of fact, everybody was glad in the United States that the, so the, these places were taken down. In New York, there actually is a heritage of taking down statues. During the American Revolution, the Patriots 
pulled down the statue of King George III that was at Battery Park, and it was made out of lead, and they melted it down to make bullets. So the reality is each generation makes its decision based on its values about what it wants to honor about the past. And I think that's the key question. And especially if there are people who committed crimes, if there are people who advocated for things which we cannot accept, I think it's legitimate for our society to have conferences and lessons and discussions and remove them. I agree. However, with all that is occurring around the country and the world, should this conversation right now be even taking place? Look, this is the thing. Conversations are important, and they're crucial to democratic societies. If people don't talk to each other, uh, things fall apart. So I think it, the discussion is important. It's not so much it's important because of the statutes per se, it's important because we need to address the lingering problems of race in America that date back to pre-Civil War and slavery. In terms of wrapping up this conversation, what do you suggest should be the first step in getting people to discuss the issues in schools and communities? Well, I've been testifying and I've, I've involved students. I involve students from high schools in, uh, in Queens. We set up a New York and slavery walking tour and we took middle school kids. So it needs to become part of the curriculum. A lot of this has been erased from the past. We have to put it back in. I think that's step number one. And two, we have to promote as much public discussion as possible. Now, one of the ways that I do it is I write about it for Huffington Post, but I also uh, do it as a rapper. I'm actually the infamous urban rapper, Reese's Pieces. <laughs> now, kids in Brooklyn, they call me Reese's Pieces because I'm better than Eminem. Now, I'm bad, but I'm not bad, I'm just bad, but I'm gonna close with one of my signature raps. Robert E. Lee, his Confederacy, defended slavery in U.S. history. Stonewall Jack led the attack. They drove the Union Army back. Old Hickory slaughtered Cherokee, committed genocide, not a mystery. Doc Marion Sims pursued medical whims. Experiments butchered enslaved black women. They were villains, not heroes. No place in our town. Time to correct history. Tear those statues down. Washington, Columbus, TR2, I'd let them stay, but it's up to you. There you have it from Reese's Pieces himself. Anyways, thank you, Alan, for being here on Getting to the Root. I appreciate you coming. And thank you very much for having me. Yo. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Alan. have been listening to Dr. Alan Singer, a professor of teaching, learning, and technology, and the director of the Social Studies Education Program here at Hofstra University. For Getting to the Root, I'm Dennis Belen Morales. Thank you, Dennis, for that piece on controversial statues across the country. 
Now, our executive producer, Ben Abrams, brings us a firsthand account of his experience in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. What you might think of as a beautiful sunny day in the Caribbean is contrasted by the stark disrepair of the decommissioned salt and sugar factory we began touring in Salinas, a small city on the southern coastline of Puerto Rico. As I walk over old, rusty metal and broken glass, I'm surrounded by my fellow students and university administrators as we follow Michelle and Luis, our tour guides and employees for the Salinas Office of Tourism. It deteriorates. Deteriorates because we closed in the 1990. That's uh, have 27 years is closed. This week-long service trip to the central and southeastern areas of the island happens just six months after Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico. This area was hit hard by what many call the worst hurricane in the island's history. And even though this old factory had been shut down years before the storm, the destruction left behind by Hurricane Maria was still obvious. Swells of water still sat in puddles under old, rusted-out industrial processors. The already disintegrating roof showed signs of violent movement from high-force winds, and the area itself, while essential to a prominent portion of Salinas' history, seemed to embody a certain aspect of the destruction the people of this area and this island in general faced when Maria made landfall in September. That's Michelle describing how the factory relates to the history of the town, while one of the administrators on our trip translates. As we walk through tall weeds and overdowned tree branches, I can't help but notice a low-frequency hum in the background. I'm curious, so I ask Michelle what it is, if maybe it's another factory nearby. She says yes, it's the power station, one that not only provides electricity to Salinas, but to the rest of the island as well. She says electricity was already somewhat spotty in Salinas before Hurricane Maria hit, but after the storm, it's been especially difficult to restore power. I ask her how long it took for Salinas to restore power. She says it depends. The downtown area was first to receive power, but that wasn't until November 1st, 42 days after the hurricane hit. And that wasn't even the most shocking thing that Michelle mentioned to me. Many residents in the mountains didn't have their power restored until two weeks ago at the time of this recording. That's almost six months later. And some areas still don't have power at all. Incredible. Mm -hmm. I couldn't react to the information I was given with anything else other than that response. Incredible. Many have been critical of the federal government's response to Hurricane Maria 
and the disaster relief effort for Puerto Rico. The slow pace of the response to the desolation of the island's infrastructure has once again highlighted Puerto Rico's precarious relationship to the federal government. But this time, the failures are obvious. Okay. Obviously, we wasn't prepared for this disaster. Karinin Bonilla Colon, the mayor of the city of Salinas, reiterates that the recovery has been difficult and slow. And it wasn't even the federal government who provided the aid within the first few months. Two months. The, the, the first team of um, people, um, the private contractor, comes after two months of the hurricane in November. So those two months, nothing happened here. The people um, that, that with the special needs that are sick were suffering for a long time. And that's the private company. How much, how much uh, aid and, and response did you receive from the island government and then the federal government? Um, from, from the state government, we didn't receive any aid. We um, did everything by our own, with our own resources. And FEMA helped us with the generators for the water system. But also, it takes too long. The first generator came two months after the hurricane. Um, the evaluation for the pe people who have any damage um, haven't ended yet. And as if the problem of Puerto Rico's debt hadn't already been in the headlines, Mayor Colon says the town expenses still have yet to be paid off. But the other problem that the municipality have that we don't we ha, we at this time we haven't received the the payments of our expenses. So right now I exp, I expend over 4 million dollars in cleaning um, contracted contracting equipment and FEMA hasn't paid us yet. Even with a group of college students putting their best effort into serving this smaller community there's a palpable feeling of being alone among the island's residents. Puerto Rico has done all it can by itself after the storm and has recovered better than anyone could have expected it to given its lack of aid. But there's still so much more to be done. Even if you take out the hurricane factor, which realistically is impossible to do, there are still signs of just how much these communities have been taken advantage of by outside forces, especially from the United States. As my group continued to tour that old factory in Salinas, our guide Michelle told us the history of some of the homes that were around us, which one of my fellow students translated. Um, so there's a whole section of the town that was bought out by Americans. They built Americans' homes and they were all built of wood and stuff like that. And the people that bought the houses after the Americans left signed contracts that said, um, you can't alter these houses in any way. If anything happens to it, you have to reconstruct it exactly as it was originally built with the same wood and everything. Um, so we should see the difference of like houses that were older and, and the newer houses when we drive through there later. Puerto Ricans have shown resilience throughout this entire ordeal. Even during our trip, our guides and the residents we met simply wanted to move on and get back to their old lives. But with the effects of the storm still very present, that's almost impossible to do without more help. For Getting to the Root, I'm Ben Abrams. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Getting to the Root. Thank you to all the musicians whose music was featured. 
we'd like to thank Ryan Little and Broke for Free. All of their music was accessed via the Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org. And don't forget to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash gttrshow and subscribe to Getting to the Root anywhere podcasters stream.